listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 181 is Robin Hitchcock, one of my musical idols. He's put out, I'm going to say, 37 legit albums since 1979, starting off with three by his band The Soft Boys. And right now hearing I Want to Destroy You by The Soft Boys from their final album, 1980's Underwater Moonlight. He's just released a new album, Shuffle Mania. We're going to be talking about The Raging Muse from that album. Then looking to his last album, 2017's Robin Hitchcock. The song is Mad Shelley's Letterbox. And we'll look further back to 2004's Spooked album. The song is Television. And we'll look all the way back to 1985's Fegmania. That's the first album by Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians to the song Glass. And we'll conclude by listening to The Shuffle Man, also from the new album. For more information, please see RobinHitchcock.com. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And as always, if you want to support the effort, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic, which will get you all the episodes ad-free and the detailed notes that I use for my episodes. So I will have played a little bit of... I Want to Destroy You by the Soft Boys from Underwater Moonlight 1980 to orient folks, although, I don't know, maybe the better orientation would have been something from 1986 or so, 88, when you were played on MTV, you had some singles in there, but this seemed to be the emergence, at least, of your pop self in your pre-solo history. We're going to get pretty quickly to the very new thing. Do you have a few words, the connection between the early days and what we're about to hear? Well, the connection, I guess, is the same DNA, really. You know, my body cells must have replaced themselves almost seven times over since I want to destroy you. But my musical DNA is probably much the same. You know, I grew out of the flowerbed of the 1960s. And so the music I heard as a teenager, primarily Bob Dylan and the Beatles, who were the biggest and the best around those days, and then a side order of Captain Beefheart and Velvet Underground and Love and The Doors and The Birds, early Pink Floyd and The Stones and The Kinks, you know, all the greats of their day, all those people who are now going over the waterfall and starting to fill the cemeteries or playing to 50,000 ecstatic people, depending on their condition. Or both at the same time. Or both at the same time. Yeah. Live from the graveyard. Those went into the, my sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old brain and kind of fertilized me for life, really. So whether you're listening to me from 1980 or me from 2020, which is, well, 40 years, the musical DNA is, is much the same, really. All right. Well, let's just get an example out there. So The Raging Muse, the second single from your new album, Shuffle Mania. The Raging Muse. Oh, it's the inflammation of creativity.
Right. So this has more of a soft boys sound than most of your output at this point. I mean, the very early soft boys where you were subverting blues. Any thoughts about using that big digging guitar sound and this to anchor the song here? That's got me on rhythm guitar. And it's got Davy Lane from the Australian band UMI playing lead. But it's not that different to uh, the sound of Kimberly Rue and myself mm-hmm. and the Soft Boys. In fact, Kimberly is on two tracks from Shuffle Mania. You know, the Soft Boys template is one that I'm very proud of. And I've never really tried to leave behind. Every so often, I go back to it. I basically move in a kind of spiral. You know, I go from louder to softer and it's not even intentional. I've just noticed that that's my Mm -hmm. MO over the decades. So every so often I will either work with old soft boys or I'll do something that sounds very like that double track vocal, little bit of John Lennon echo on it to the slightly grungy rhythm guitar and a slightly heavy lead guitar. That's about as loud as I get. Yeah. And well, and this adds the not unique within your output, but unusual, the aggressive, pointy 50s rock and roll piano that is also filling up spot. It's a much more dense song in terms of the arrangement than most of what you put out. I don't know. Have you heard the rest of the album yet? I, I, you know, I, I just got it today. So maybe this is a statement about where you're at right now rather than. I think it might be more of a statement about the, the fact the album had time to grow quite a few overdubs. I hope we didn't grow too many, but because the songs went from my hive in Nashville out to other people to overdub around the world, like the Raging Muse went from Nashville to Melbourne, Australia, where the lead guitar went, and then it went back to Cardiff in South Wales And then it went back to Nashville again for some more drums. Who's the drummer on this? Ryan Brewer, who lives in Nashville, but he's actually Australian. And then it wound up in Charlie's attic in Cardiff, where the whole thing was mixed. So basically, you know, Mark, the whole thing zoomed around collecting overdubs. And I think the piano was the last thing to go on, apart from the bagpipes at the very end. Well, I think the mixing handles it very well, because even at the beginning, when you, you're coming in, it sounds like it's, it's your guitar. It's not the lead guitar. It's noodling quite a bit, but it's just tamped down. So there's just some sort of rumbling. And that's sort of what the piano does, too, that it comes out and waves around. But then a lot of times it's just sort of struggling under the surface. And it's a nice, I don't know, fits with this fish imagery <laughs> under the grass. Thank you. That's really Charlie's work. But he did quite a few mixes that these... Songs went back and forth. And also by the time we were mixing it, we were over here in London, still sort of locked down. And then Emma was coming in and kind of taking me through the redoing the vocals. A lot of the vocals were kind of out of tune. So Emma's a fantastic singer. So she was coaching me through the final vocals. And then I like to double track them. So, you know, we took quite a lot of trouble over this. It started quite informally, just me and my four-and-a-half-track machine in Nashville. But it actually, by the end of it, it's probably more finished than I thought it was going to be. You know, I hope it isn't over-finished. So was the initial impetus to the song this, The Raging Muse, the catch? Or was that a later, like, oh, I could do that with the note? <laughs> I see what you mean. No, the vocal line was there from the beginning. It probably actually even started on the piano in the very early days. But it was like that. No, it kind of went in the direction that I hoped. 
but it just went through various stages. There wasn't like a bunch of people in the studio Mm -hmm. doing a take. It probably took about three or four months to actually have everything on it. Well, I'm guessing that if you did have all these people in the studio, that it probably would have been stretched out a little because there are really cool little jagged piano or guitar solos, but they're, you know, it's like six beats, you know, it's it's stuffed in between. But then we'd have probably edited it, you know. Any thoughts about this? You know, you use so much aquatic imagery, uh, cuttlefish, you know, whatever. whatever. If I was seeing this in isolation, like, oh, this is a very nice metaphor of sort of musical ideas as fish. And you even say... You know, it's not very often in a metaphor that it's actually spelled out. The fish are thoughts. The fish are feelings. Am I reading that right? Well, I guess that's what I said. Yes. I mean, the thing with a metaphor is, is it a metaphor or is it just the thing itself? You know, I do have recurring dreams about fish in the grass. To me, they feel like feelings and they feel like thoughts. But I mean, maybe I don't know what they are. They may actually represent something else. You know, it might be a death wish or it might be something erotic or it might be something to do with the appetite. I just sort of steer it to feelings and thoughts, but I don't know. You know, they're my dreams, so I guess they're my responsibility more than anyone else's. But, I mean, somebody said the other day, oh, boy, he's making up for 30 years of not writing about fish. Now they're all here. Hooray! (laughs) You know, I'm not aware of having shunned sea creatures, but... It's just because I have a few songs with sea creatures in, people associate me with them. You know, it's like someone said to Lou Reed, oh, why do you write all these drug songs? And Lou said, I own only 3%. You know, but it doesn't take very much to get a reputation for something. And I had a couple of songs back in the 80s, very fish rich. There was one called Bass, which has, you know, a sort of whole litany of fish really more um, in it. And I suppose that helped establish my reputation. Well, I didn't know if without sort of unearthing all those songs to talk about them individually. I mean, here in the bridge, it seems like since you're talking about creativity, you're talking about something. And if this seems sort of gauche to clarify this too much, I can stop this line of questioning. But, you know, talking about back in the pond to ungrow their legs, that it's something about to catch these ideas before they get away involves, as you've said in different interviews, not editing yourself, turning off part of your brain to let a different part arise, to get at those dreams. Yes, I think that's a fair point. Basically, you can't become too self-conscious, which another dream I had, actually, which I was just discussing elsewhere, where I, I dream that I'm flying, but as I become aware that I'm flying, I sink lower and lower to the ground. And in the end, I'm actually swimming through the grass. Maybe I'm a fish. And I look up and say, I say, I'm not really flying, am I? And people say, no, you're not. You're just trying to swim through grass. But to begin with, I feel like I'm actually flying, you know, swimming through the air. And I feel like that's a dream about self-consciousness. As I become aware of having this miraculous gift, it goes. So I think the less you, you can't know too much about what you're doing. So it sounds like that dream you're describing, like just writing down what you said There's lots of times where I have an idea for, you know, I had this idea of being a hypochondriac about mental illnesses, like wondering, am I actually narcissistic? Am I clinically depressed? Sort of seeing yourself in all that. That seems like a good substance for a song, but it takes, for me at least, a lot of to actually make that, like, how do I express the complexity that you were just describing 
of the feeling like you're realizing that you're flying and that is what makes you not fly. I mean, you could either just try to go into a dream state and (laughs) write down some things, which is what I've done with many songs, or actually try the very difficult literary task of like, how do you capture that very difficult concept? I don't know. Is there a lot of fidgeting after the fact with your lyrics, like for this one in particular? No, I'm blissfully unaware of writing when I do write to the point where I often look in my notebook and I don't remember having written anything down. If I've got the melody comes at the same time as the words, then I'm a bit more self-conscious, which I don't like. I'm lucky. I actually don't know when I'm doing it and I don't remember it afterwards, which then kind of suggests that I'm not really responsible for it. And as someone who likes to avoid responsibility, then so be it. As long as I can collect the publishing royalties, I'm fine. This stuff might as well be dictated to me by somebody else, you know, even though I know it's just another part of my psyche. I think the more you can forget yourself in the process, the easier it becomes. And if you're aware of, it's me thinking this stuff, That's a bit of a killer because it's a bit like trying to be intimate in public. It's very hard to be intimate with somebody if you think everybody's watching or even to be candid about yourself. You know, you can just feel too vulnerable. So I just have a nice sort of screen of invisibility when I'm thinking up lyrics. It's almost like I have to stare off. I need somewhere to stare, like I need to look out a window at just a fixed point. You know, it could be a burglar alarm on the house over the road or something like that, but it's something else. It's outside. If really your creations are so elusive to you after the fact, this will be interesting doing the rest of this interview. (laughs) Let's get some of the older songs. So Mad Shelley's Letterbox, the last album, the self-titled Robin Hitchcock 2017 album. This was one of the singles off there. It's a very cool, you know, the Who kind of 60s sound to it. A couple words about it before we hear it. Oh, terrific band on this one. The Johns, John Radford on drums and John Estes on bass and Annie McHugh on guitar, all engineered and produced by Brendan Benson. It was a bit of the who. John Radford was definitely channeling some Keith Moon. I really like this performance.
So how much are you, when you're working with a band like this, I don't know, did you work this up live as a four piece? Well, they're Nashville cats. So what you do is you come in with your song and then they kind of play it with you and you listen to it back and you think, oh, I see. Okay. We've got an arrangement. I think we did actually have rehearsed. We had like one rehearsal before we recorded, before we went in. It wasn't completely cold, you know, but they're very, very quick. They chart what you give them and then they play it in a way that makes it sound like you've been playing together for months. And that's one of the great joys of working in Nashville. Both of these songs have a place where it opens up. This one, you know, is a very direct contrast that everybody's, you know, just playing eighth notes together. And then it opens up with this very nice birdsy guitar for the Oh God, You Were Beautiful. But then having the Mad Shelley's letterbox thing on the end of that, we're just going to compress all this open beauty into this propulsive low thing that's going up. Any, any thoughts about that construction? A little unusual. I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's the way you describe it. I guess it's in three movements. I mean, I guess the drums don't get really full until you get into the chorus, the Mad mm-hmm. Shelley's letterbox. And each time we add an, an extra chorus, so the line happens once, first time, twice, second verse, three times, third verse. So it builds up. And in the third verse, you've got that bam, ba bam, ba bam, ba bam. It's yeah. sort of almost like the beat. You've done too much, too young or something. It's got that quite staccato thing going on at the bottom. Yeah, it's, I mean, the idea basically was that the song opens out, if you like. At the end of the letter, Mad Shelley's letterbox is full of birthday cards, and it's just like eight counts of what I wrote as soft boy's guitar. That it has the same feel as the very beginning of I Want to Destroy You and some of the pointy stuff in the previous song. But it's just there for just a little bit. And then we're back to collapsing into the verse again. I'm a two and a half trick pony, I suppose. (laughs) And that's definitely half a trick. It's one that I return to quite a lot of having those, that guitar sounds. Yeah. Well, it makes me feel like, you know, some of this, like the chords that are under Mad Shelley's letterbox that you write, if not on bass, which is what I used to do, is actually write songs on bass and then try to get a guitarist to, but that at least you have the lower, you know, maybe as a finger picker that you have very clearly, I'm writing not so much just a bunch of chords, I'm writing a line, and somehow then everything's going to build around that. The thing you were just singing. Well, that staccato line at the end might have been one of the others. It would be my chord sequence. Each time it happens, you just try and make it slightly different, you know what I mean? This descending, I put Christmassy guitars, you know, the special delivery for Mad Shelley. And this is kind of, and then it comes back later in the song. Any thoughts about just, we're going to throw in that very holiday sort of uh, descending open, I guess it goes with the open birdsy guitar sound that having arpeggios descend in that way is a, is a nice way to show it off. It has been around. It's probably the kind of thing that XTC have, mm-hmm. have done. I mean, it's a bit like Apples and Oranges, the last Sid Barrett song he did with the Pink Floyd but not exactly, but it's that sort of feel. And the point is with music, you know, or I know when it's time to change it a little Mm -hmm. bit. You know, there's not a vast variety of things. I'm not suddenly going to go into 7.13 time and I'm not going to bring in 
steam organs or orchestras, partly because I couldn't afford it, but partly because I'm too impatient. In the soft boys, at certain points, we would do something like going to 713 time. I'd say, okay, wise guys, you know about, so what would 713 be like? And they'd all go, oh, why, good Lord, Professor, that's impossible. And I'd say, well, just show me. Or I'd play them something and say, okay, what time signature is that? And they'd say, oh, I think that's 8-9, you know. And I mean, it also would keep them interested. Some of the guys in the band at that stage, what interested them was complexity. Straight ahead, rock and roll wasn't really interesting for them, you know. So I was encouraged. I was given a platform to experiment with time signatures. But actually, it's quite hard playing that stuff live, and most people don't appreciate it. Also, I suppose at the end of the 70s, a prog approach really didn't chime with punk. There wasn't prog punk, but we were probably the nearest thing to it. At one point, that was probably like about a year in the band, and that was before we started working on Underwater Moonlight. Well, you're going to make me, this is not a time signature thing, but in terms of pulling out a kitchen sink sort of arrangement. So in the first song, The Raging Muse, about 335, sort of at the climax of the song. These fish in the grass, how slowly they pass for your own sake. Never step on them. Most things drop out. Drums continue. And then bagpipes? Charlie Francis had a sample of some bagpipes. I just thought at that point, what would be good here? Because I'd arranged there to be a dropout there. And so when they put the drums on, it all dropped out. All the musicians, when they played along with it, left the gap there. So we had that gap. I just thought, oh, yeah, bagpipes. And Charlie had the perfect thing. He'd sampled some bagpipes two or three years before, and it, he supplied me with what he called wrestled or wrangled bagpipes, I think. So okay. There's about – but, you know, we, we, there were still a couple of passes back and forth where we tried to get the level. I think we got the level right. Yes. What makes this sound like it's a weird explosion within – the band as it exists, it can't come from a foreign land, but it's supposed to be something fundamentally new. How do you actually mix that in? That's pretty difficult. Well, that's the thing is finding the level. But at that point, the song was ready for a new ingredient mm -hmm. and something that was kind of dissonant, but wasn't just going to throw the whole song out the window. You know, it's just finding things to keep the ear interested as you move along, whether it's sample bagpipes or it's kind of church bell guitars i think at the end of mad shelley i was gonna say that there's this swirly the last hit you add some effects on the last note yes got brendan god either we slowed the tape down as it were simulated tape slowing down you know like the machine stops oh basically. i know i miss on my four track that little uh overall pitch thing that you could just do during the mix down and now i have to figure out some digital shenanigans i know it's like you can't turn the tape around anymore and that was always a great way for an effect was just backwards guitar or piano it's like okay you know the letterbox is full the song is over well and this one has that reached the home stretch and you put in your harmonized ahs, which is something that is 
another one of those ingredients that comes up in at least a few of your other songs. You know, as opposed to having a big guitar solo or something like that. No, it's part of my shtick. That goes back to, like so many things, it goes back to 1966, 67, you know, like um, the end of Hole in My Shoe by Traffic or something. And they're going, ah, and then they know that, ah, obviously I can't sing both harmonies <laughs> at once, but, you know, it was a very ah time. <laughs> there was a lot of it, you know, Lucy in the Sky with, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, ah. I think that those R's are just in my DNA and I'll probably be putting them in songs long after I've died. All right, well, let's get a third song on the table. Television, the first track from Spooked 2004. I'm wondering whether I love this song just because, so is it David Rawlings that's doing the lead guitar? Is that, or is that you? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's still a nice song besides just that element, but that really, really, really sells it. I mean, it has that, I thought it might be Peter Buck originally, you know, because he does similar things on some of your tunes, but having this nice acoustic thing. Say a few words about it before we hear it. Oh, done with Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings in their studio, Woodland Street Studios, end of 2003, I think, or the beginning of 2004. It's a vintage song now. It's a historically pre-internet song. Open to me 
remote is in my hand I condemn you to a red light Honey, try to understand I'm
there's not as much going on with the arrangement here, which is kind of nice. So we can talk about the lyrics of this and maybe also the lyrics of the previous one we didn't really talk about. But let's hit it a little bit. You know, you really let this song breathe and take its time. Like, was this something that was jammed with David or did he add that after the fact? Like, was it always going to be this long even before that lead guitar was added? No, nothing was added. I mean, they're not overdubbed people. Oh, okay. I had to really kind of lure them into doing overdubs. So there's one song on there where I got Gillian to double track and she would never normally do it. You know, their records are all done and part of the joy of their records is that they're exquisitely arranged and performed and recorded live in the studio. But it's always just two vocal mics and two guitars and they will maybe spend months getting it right. And they just take their time. They've been working on a new record for years. And I don't think they're anywhere near finishing it to their satisfaction. But I've heard them play quite a few of the songs and they are just beautiful. So you're saying vocals for this were even done live? These bing bonga bing-bong harmonies that are so precise. Yeah, no, that's all done live. And I don't think they double track either. I think it's all done. I think the three of us were sitting in a circle. I mean, that's the thing I particularly like about this record that comes from Spooked is that I had the honor of being in a Welch Rawling sandwich. You know, it's like one of their albums, but I happen to be the lead vocalist. But, you know, the harmonies are all in there. No, I don't think there's any overdubs on television. It's just completely straight. Well, let's talk about, I mean, this is the opening statement of the album, and it starts off with this very pretty intro, and then this bing-a-bong-a-bing-bong, which is sung in a very pretty way, but is a weird thing. Can you say a little about why that is even here? Like, was this sort of like, I hear a melody, and it could be horns, oh, but let's just say it as bing-a-bong, like, is that the kind of thing? Like, that it was a placeholder that just stayed, or why bing-a-bong-a-bing-bong? Well, I guess I would have had the song in my notebook, I'd written, I think something was written on a plane. I mean, this is 20 years ago now. But so you'd write bing-a-bong-a-bing-bong in a notebook? or No, or- I don't think I did write. I don't think I did write bing-a-bong-a-bing-bong. I think, <laughs> I think I just wrote the words down on the plane. And I was going to be in a movie, Jonathan Demme, the late Jonathan Demme put me in his remake of The Manchurian Candidate very sweetly. And I had a lot of downtime. I was able to sit in my trailer dressed in combat gear or something. And then every so often a a guy would come by and put some of those little kind of hot cake things under under my feet because it was so cold. It was in a quarry in New Jersey. Uh, And I'd just sit there playing the guitar for a couple of hours. So I would have arranged it there in, in this trailer. I remember that. So I went down to Nashville and they showed me the studio. And then I said, oh, hey, I've got a song. Do you want to record them? You know, and they, ah, because they said, come and see our studio. It was all very unintentional. I'm sorry. I don't really know why I would have put Bing a Bong a Bing Bong. (laughs) But again, I think probably because it fitted, maybe because the song itself is quite solemn. And so what it needs is something percussive and lighthearted. You know, we, it's a bit like sort of a theme from a children's show or something. Bing a bong a bing bong bing bong. You know, sort of quite wistful but playful in a way that the song isn't really. The song is quite somber and kind of almost leering. It's a kind of voyeur song, really. 
but the voyeur is actually the television. It's that sort of, you know, the beholder is beholding or whatever. So I, th- I think I probably felt, again, same as I did with the other two songs, okay, here's where we need bing a bong a bing like here's where we need bagpipes, you know, or here's where we're going to have slowed-down guitar or, you know, chimes or something. There are a few songs that I can think of that try to address our relation to television. And specifically, I like this sort of lonely-in-a-hotel-room television. And yes, this is definitely a pre-internet time. But it's even worse if you try in a song to talk about your relationship to your computer or drop specific Snapchat or talk about text. Like, those are killers. And even talking about television, I feel like a lot of those songs are dated to, you know, the particular fascination of what was going on in like 19, in the early 80s, say, when there's all this, oh, television is rotting our minds. And, but you managed to maybe because you have this overall, it's neither absurdist nor ironic, but adjacent to those two phenomena way of that you could do this very sincere song, this love song, but leering, you know, this personal relationship. And so it's okay. You know, the music is very nice and you can talk about the television. If it's weirder than most songs that are pretty in this way, it's no weirder than the rest of your catalog. And it does not keep it from being emotionally affecting, put it that way. I mean, the other thing I think about that time is that the movie Jonathan Demme was making, The Manchurian Candidate, the remake of the one that had been done in 1962. I think Frank Sinatra was in it. It was very much, television was a very big part of it. At the time, I remember watching it once he'd actually put it together and thinking, my God, this is a real monument to the TV age because laptops were just coming in. I think there's even some laptops in the movie, but you don't have everybody on their cell phones yet. People in the States weren't even texting yet. I remember showing Jonathan how to text. He said, you know, you can text on your, can you? Yeah, you can send texts on your cell phone. It was a different world where people, if they wanted a visual image, were still basically dependent on a TV set. You know, a lot of televisions weren't even flat screens still. It was the old Mm -hmm. one that went further back. And when you watch that movie, it's just the narrative is held together by a series of TV interviews, TV announcements, news broadcasts in a way that I don't think it would be now. I felt like my song was already kind of a tribute to that era while it was coming to an end, you know, apart from the whole beholding the beholder. Well, and a good dose of like, I was thinking of Loudon Wainwright Jr.'s Motel Blues, that series of vulnerable, desperate, lonely in a hotel room songs. Yeah, there definitely is. And that song would have been the kind of fruits of traveling around and indeed was written on a plane. So that's more or less linear in terms of the story that you're telling here. Just since we didn't talk about Mad Shelley's letterbox, the meaning of it, you know, it sounds like it's a mourning for a lost love, which is a weird thing for a such a jolly, rollicking song. Can you say anything about what's actually going on in that song? Or is it actually written to be, it's just abstract, you don't even know. It is mourning for a lost love. And I think all the more reason there for it to be an upbeat song I think it's important to, whatever you're doing, you need something to contrast with it. Just like bing-a-bong-a-bing in television, you know, a little children's hook to go with a quite dark, lonely song or, you know, Mad Shelley's Letterbox. Imagine it was something like Pete Townsend would have written in 1967. Mm -hmm. The days of The Who doing those sort of character songs, you know, Happy Jack and 
So let's make this one snappy. And also it is actually a kind of desperate song. And so if you're desperate, maybe get loud and fast. <laughs> it's not a mournful song. It's too urgent, really. Let's talk about the instrument that is your voice. Oh, you've had yeah. plenty of time to, I don't know, was there an early part of your career where people were like, because I get this, I have a, an unusual voice, let's say, or at least I did in my younger days. Were you always going to be the lead singer? Was that the thing from the beginning that you were confident enough, you were the writer, you were going to sing this stuff? Or was there a, in 1976 or whenever you would have been thinking about this, some sort of pressure of, no, let the person with the conventional croon do the lead stuff and you'll do something else? I was always going to be the lead singer if they were my songs. And apart from my art school band, which was a sort of democracy, I've always been the front man and it's basically been my band. I've essentially called the shots. If things have gone well, I've had lieutenants, 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 people who've kind of been wing people, people who've helped it along, but they haven't expected to be the lead singer. Mm -hmm. And the very beginning, around 1976, indeed, I was imagining having a band and I thought, wouldn't it be great if the lead singer was a robot? And they were my songs, but the lead singer was this very handsome, synthetic being. And we had a band called The Soft Boys, and they were kind of these invisible, very low-profile, creepy, Eminence Dries-type people who you couldn't really see them. They could walk down a corridor and then kind of slide, liquefy themselves and slide under a door and come up the other side, like, like you know, in the Terminator 2 or whatever. But mm -hmm. I just imagined the soft boys as these science fiction, creepy William Burroughs, sort of slightly erotic, sinister, powerful, absurd figures and you'd have the main guy the main person was actually artificial needless to say you know i'm not remotely technical i can dream things up but i can't put them into practice so none of that came to pass and i just found a bunch of guys in cambridge who would back me up and it became the soft boys and in terms of good vocalists i'm not a beautiful singer i am what they call a stylist you know, like Lou Reed or Elvis Costello or Graham Parsons or Bob Dylan himself, who a lot of people feel can't sing. The people I was drawn to were all character singers, Captain Beefheart, Lou Reed, Sid Barrett. They were all people that you wouldn't go, oh, my God, listen to the lungs on that. You know, whoa, he can sing like Caruso. I mean, the Beatles were fine singers, you know, John and Paul particularly, but George could hold a tune. But certainly Dylan and the sort of sons of Dylan all had much more peculiar voices than the sons of Lou Reed, who I basically, I feel it, it was all descended from the rod of Bob, if you like. Or the twin of Leonard Cohen and Bob, I'll say. The dark Bob is what I think of Leonard Cohen as. <laughs> yeah, Leonard Cohen had a more gentler voice, but maybe a more monotonous one, but Emma and I were talking about this the other night. Like, you know, if you have Lou Reed on one side and Leonard Cohen on the other, is Bob in the middle, you know? Yeah, Cohen was another influence. I was into personality singers rather than singers, singers. And rock, also rock vocalists. 
you kind of need a certain timbre to cut through shitty PAs. Mm-hmm. So basically, whether you're Van Morrison or Lou Reed, who are extremely different vocalists in a way, but they're both sort of curmudgeonly sons of Bob. They have this sort of beak that would cut through. So, you know, you could be singing Gloria or Waiting for the Man or whatever, you know, even if it was just a kind of little trebly, I just call it a beak because it cuts through that back line would be too loud and whatever, but you could hear this voice or somebody like Lennon, who was a real brilliant singer, but he also had that rock and roll beak that would cut through and McCartney could do it, George less so. Dylan, you know, and people complained they couldn't make out his lyrics when he went electric, but you'd still hear his voice wailing around Garth Hudson's keyboards and Robertson scranging away on his Telecaster, you know, so it was all about having a, and that's what I had have, I suppose, is I've got a rock and roll beak voice. So it may go in and out of tune, but I'm still going to cut through. And that way I'm a, a rock and roll singer. Definitely. I'm sure I had heard your Global Frogs and things before this, but when I was in college and a friend of mine gave me I, so 1989, I know that was the album of we're just going to expose, like, let's actually really expose these lyrics. And so you have some of your more, most vulnerable, non-rock-like, the grandparents of what we're hearing in television, that in television you have, you say you love me in the way that love cracks there. Like that wonderful character vulnerability that I feel like was something that had to develop over time. Or was that even there in 1981 somewhere? I think the whole vulnerability issue is a really good one because coming from a sort of stiff upper lip British middle class background. I mean, my dad was a bit of a kvetch, but he'd still been in the army and he'd been in World War II and stuff. So our parents' generation were all about, to some extent, grin and bear it, suck it up, get on with it, don't make too much trouble. And then us boomers and post-boomers could all get into, but you're hurting my feelings. And, you know, modern life was born. As a younger man, I was quite harsh and I wanted to be quite harsh. I didn't really like it when people got too tender. I didn't like Neil Young getting all wimpy and stuff. I didn't like all that stuff about people going through changes that was happening a lot in the sort of late 60s and early 70s. And it made me cling to Lou Reed because he was mean and he had shades and, you know. But then even Lou got soft in the end. And I think where I started to get vulnerable was listening to a lot of, oddly enough, probably Brian Ferry and Roxy music. So from about after the Soft Boys, I began to write softer songs. Soft Boys was terribly loud. You know, we were soft personalities, but we were a noisy bunch. And Kimberly and I, between us, were deafening. It was just a guitar battle. So I was the first really vulnerable record. But by then I'd become quite successful in America, or at least I was making a living and I was on MTV and, you know, people would recognize me in airports and stuff like that. So I had a much higher profile than I'd had. And maybe I felt safe enough to be a bit more vulnerable. But yeah, I was the first one. I mean, I think a lot of people think of that as sort of, I often dream of trains volume two that, you know, because they're acoustic records, but I guess there is a fundamental difference. Oh no, trains, they're really different because Mm -hmm. I often dream of trains. All that was written while I was still living in a bubble in Britain. I hadn't started touring America. I hadn't had any significant success. I was 
doing gardening jobs and I was writing articles under a pseudonym and all kinds of, you know, and I was writing lyrics for Captain Sensible. I was just doing odd bits and pieces to get by. And then I, and I made the trains album. I wanted to make it for under a thousand pounds. And I did. I said, okay, press up a thousand copies and see what happens. And then it did all right. It did quite well, you know, in the end, but. That was a private world. You know, I was living in, spending a lot of time just in the countryside by myself. Uh, whereas I, I was, you know, in the thick of everything. I was the REM. Well, I was, yeah, you know, hanging out with REM, opening for them. We were kind of alternative. I was an alternative pinup. I was in the middle of relationship fragmentation and I was lurching between Britain and the States. I was the first record I made in the States. I was a very turbulent time, whereas Trains was a kind of snow globe before it cracked. So the Trains is very arranged on Porter Studio. Even It sounds simple, but I worked it all out in advance. I was just put down as it was in San Francisco. There was very little prearrangement. So I is a much more naked record and I would probably do it more carefully if I was doing it now. I'm glad I did it. That doesn't always work, but it did work then. So I will link folks to some songs that I like, especially from those two albums in the show notes. The next one we're actually going to play here is around that time, 1985, Glass from Fagamania, the first studio Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians album. It's just a nice, concise pop song. It does have 80s elements. You flirted with having a keyboardist in the Egyptians for just an album and a half. Is, is that right? We had Roger Jackson, who was a mate from Cambridge. That was the, the digital years. I mean, it was still recorded on tape, but the whole thing had a digital pattern. Or it was the days of SPX 90s for guitar choruses and DX 7s for a keyboard and you know, flanged bass and gated snare and all this sort of 80s sugar was just suddenly scattered over the music in a way that wasn't there if you listen to Underwater Moonlight. And part of the charm of Underwater Moonlight is that we couldn't even afford any effects, you know. We didn't even have a chorus pedal. So Moonlight actually has a very pure sound certainly for the guitars and i think that's one of the reasons people like it is it's a very good record of what happens if you have two fender stratocaster a fender telecaster two fender amps you know clear in stereo left and right by the time you get a feg mania everything is sugared and blurred and digitized and people are wearing trousers that are baggy at the top and tight at the bottom and hair is sort of long over the eyes and short at the back. Everything everything was kind of reversed, you know. And that's not talking about the song at all, but just the sound. And again, that's the sound I then escaped on I because I wanted to have something pure that wasn't affected by what other people thought a good sound might be. I, again, is a, escapes that. All the sugar, all the dust isn't there.
this is just one of the songs that I feel like is a straightforward good ballad. It's one of your more crooned songs. You're not being super vulnerable. It's sung, but it's just a very nice, direct, eye-like sentiment and imagery and things. Do you have any, any memories of the writing of this song, which seems a very sort of classical, I don't know if that means more work went into it or if that means it was more quickly tossed off. But what do you remember about this one? I wrote it around a guitar figure. In 7-4, that one between... I've never strummed it, but I've always played that guitar figure, which is that that is in 7-4, is it? Just the instrumental lick. But then when you come in and sing it, it straightens out. Okay, yeah. For some reason, I don't know, but I had that lick on the acoustic guitar and then I wrote the rest of it. It's a reflective song. Glass, it's the transparency and reflection of glass. Glass is kind of fragile. It's breakable, but it could also cut you really horribly if things went wrong. It's a bit like the sea almost. You know, the sea has moods. The sea could just break your neck or it could caress you. You know, it could refresh you or poison you, slap you down or buoy you up. It's almost like a parent, the sea. And allegedly we come out of it. So it is a parent in a way, if we're all descended from fish. And glass is like our sort of tribute to water in a way. It reflects, it can absorb. There's certain light you could see through a window and you wouldn't know it was a window. Other light you can't see through a window at all. It's just sort of dazzling right back at you. Glass seems to have its own moods as well. It's almost like glass is human water. I think of glass as a tranquil song. It's the closest I get to tranquility. I'm not a tranquil guy at all in real life. And I feel like my songs are quite busy. There's a lot going on. I like to think of glass as a sort of almost like a meditation, something you could put on, light a joystick, get a bowl of rose leaves and cross your legs and stare into the void and listen to glass, you know. Needless to say, I, I don't remember when I wrote it or what I was, I never really know where they come from, but I do, I like the feeling in it. And I think, I, again, I think I got it right. The guys got it right. Morris and Andy, who'd been in the Soft Boys, they were back together with me for that. And we had Roger, who hadn't been in the Soft Boys. And we had my friend, James Fletcher, who was briefly in there on sax. Oh, I don't think he plays on that song, but I like what Morris and Andy did. They were a very nimble rhythm section and they were kind of anything but a rock rhythm section, really. They play snappy rock stuff, but I thought they were at their best when they were just being kind of inventive in a way that I think John Radford and John Estes are in Nashville. They don't always do what I think they're going to do. It's not sort of predictable. You've Take a song into them and you'll go, oh, wow, that's, gosh, I never thought of that. And, and I think Radford and Estes of that kind of rhythm section. And I think Morris and Andy were as well. Yes, tuneful. And, you know, when you actually like remember drum licks, that's not that <laughs> normal, but yet completely solid. Like it's still going to add that extra, you know, actually make it rock and roll. Yeah, Morris is a very artful drummer, but he's such a self-effacing guy that I tend to notice Morris drum parts most when somebody else plays them. And then I'll hear, you know, somebody else playing Morris's fills from Oceanside or The Queen of Eyes or something. And I think, my good Lord, and what's that? And he said, it's all on the record, you know, the whoever's playing the drums will say to me. And actually, it goes back to Morris Windsor. He, he just is artful, but it's 
Well, he just doesn't draw any attention to it. You know, I know he's proud of what he does, but he's really, he is self-effacing, isn't in it for Morris, really. Well, I like just because of my age and that I was, you know, in middle school around this time, the 80s-ness of it. It's not Wang Chung. It's not overwhelming. But is this the kind of thing that, like, you could do a remix of and make it sound, you know, so that it really shows what a classical song this is without having it and those strong performances or even just, you know, get a new band or whatever and redo some old songs like this. I know you have live albums and things. I guess, is that the way that you do what I'm talking about? I'm probably content to leave them as they are. I do have some of those old tapes. And actually, I, that's something that is going to come up. It's like, do I do anything with the 24 tracks or just get rid of them? You know, are we going to ever remix them? Are the machines even available? I'm sure 24 tracks is available and they could be digitized and Mm -hmm. it's expensive to keep storing them. And I haven't done anything with them so far in 35 years. And there's other formats, you know, one inch, eight track, half inch, eight track, uh, you know, piles of it. Ah, God, I don't know. I I wouldn't say it's a priority. You you think they sound all right as they are. Yeah. We should get you a a good archivist. It seems like though you've had all these, I was trying to count the number of albums and according to Wikipedia or whatever, you have 26, but then all these albums of outtakes. So like, does this album count as one album? Does this count as two? So the way I was counting, it's like 37 legit albums, you know, plus oh, some, really? something crazy like that. It seems like there's a lot to, uh, I don't know, hopefully not like Lou Reed waiting until you're dead to have somebody go through that pile and <laughs> try to make sense of it all. I was hearing about the Lou Reed archive project recently. Have you been to the museum in New York where they've got uh, the tape that he mailed to himself of Mm. six early songs that I think I'll Be Your Mirror and Pale Blue Eyes and things? He wrote them when he was, well, I mean, this was like 65, so he could only have been 23 or so. And so the main thing is that the song exists somewhere and people can hear it. And that's another reason I got Patreon going now. I put my demos up. So if I don't get round to making an album, they still exist, you know, people can hear them. Well, great. I don't want to keep you anymore. Let's introduce the last tune. So the Shuffle Man, the first single from Shuffle Mania. What do you want them to to get out of this little ditty that they're two and a half minutes? I want them to get pure joy and <laughs> a love of chaos and a close embrace, a dance with the random, but in the best possible way. out the law I'm gonna see what the shuffle man saw oh yes oh yes oh yes oh yes oh yes stacks are lit by gaslight stars are lit by jazz I wanna have what the shuffle man has oh yes oh yes oh yes oh yes oh yes don't forget to function don't need one of those I'm gonna go where the shuffle man goes oh Yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. 
Thanks so much to Robin and to Emma Swift, his partner who helped me set up this interview. The release date for Shuffle Mania is October 18th, but you can hear the two songs already on his Bandcamp and there are videos for them. And there's so much of his back catalog to explore. When we were wrapping up, Robin asked me how old I was. And when I told him I was, you know, a bit over 50, he said, yeah, that's about the average age of my fan base. So that's not good. You should get hooked on this guy the way that I have. He's one of the smartest singer-songwriters that there is. He was much more coherent, concise, on the ball than I expected someone whose songwriting technique seems to be to uh, turn off part of one's brain, as I said, so that the unconscious can emerge. But anyway, I have a, a full shelf of his CDs taking up space in my collection, and I was very glad to have this excuse to get caught up with the last few albums, which I had you know, neglected in favor of the people I'm interviewing on this show. I've also just signed up to become his uh, a patron at patreon.com slash Robert Hitchcock. And he's got over a hundred exclusive performances there of songs as he's writing them, demos of very old songs. But in any case, everybody can get more information at robinhitchcock.com. If you look to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, you'll see in the blog post for this episode, I have links to select videos and things of his. And of course, that's the place to go to make sure you're signed up directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed and not merely hearing this through the Partially Examined Life feed, which, which will give you episodes later and they disappear from that feed pretty quickly. So nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I have nearly 200 interviews with wonderful musicians up there presenting you their songs in full, just as you have heard here. My next interview after this one was with Alan and Barb Vest, a uh, husband and wife team who make up Double V. Alan Vest's previous band was the Starlight Mints. That might not sound familiar, but you've probably seen some of their songs on TV shows or whatnot. And then I just talked to Neil Gust, famed from Heat Miser and Number Two, these Portland bands. Heat Miser was actually, he co-fronted with Elliot Smith. So Elliot Smith is not with us anymore. This is the closest I get to having an Elliot Smith interview. And Neil is delightful in himself, of course. So thanks for your interest in the podcast. If you want to support it, go to patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. That will get you ad-free episodes. You might get them a little early occasionally. And I link to my Google Docs, the notes that I put together for these episodes that have the lyrics in full and my comments on the arrangements and everything broken down by time code. If you want to see how much effort actually goes into these episodes, there's a little window into my mind that you can get for a mere, you know, small amount, a dollar per episode or whatever you want to commit. You can even set a monthly maximum. And I sometimes have bonus discussion with the artists, although I often don't want to keep them more than an hour. It's not something that I press them on unless they seem very, very talkative. Well, I hope you're doing well. I, as I told you last time, have gotten my own musical archives together at marklint.bandcamp.com. There are now 17 releases up there, which is just about everything that I've ever done. Certainly everything that you'd actually want to hear. There is uh, about a half an album recorded with uh, my friend Steve that will finish up sometime. So that's not up there yet. But otherwise, 
that is up there. And I've been as these things get released onto Apple Music and Spotify and things like that, posting some songs one by one on my Facebook page. So feel free to, to friend me on Facebook after, of course, you have liked the Nakedly Examined Music Facebook page. And there's actually also a Mark Lint Music Facebook page if you want to follow that. So keep creating, keep discovering new artists, keep your mind open, however you do it. Keep on music. And this is Mark Lintenmeyer signing off. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.